type of experiment that we're doing is to understand how molecules actually behave in the real environment in a live neuron. Hello and welcome to this episode of A Grey Matter. I'm Rebecca Archer. Can there be order in an environment full of chaos? It might be hard to imagine, but our brains may hold the answer. Every movement, thought and memory is somehow coordinated within a raging storm of chaos. Here at the Queensland Brain Institute, Professor Frederic Meunier is exploring how the brain navigates the discord with technologies that enable us to peer ever further into the mysteries of our brain. Professor Meunier and his team use super-resolution microscopy to understand some of the most basic components of who we are. How do we form memories? How do we learn? And what happens when these processes break down? Welcome, Professor Meunier, and thank you for your time today. Thanks very much. Our brains are such elegant, advanced and, of course, important machines responsible for everything from movement to speech. How can they be chaotic? Well, what's chaotic is what's happening inside the cell at the nanoscale level. This is the the normal level at which our proteins and lipids are actually operating. There's diffusion, there's Brownian movement. It's been discovered by Mr. Brown in the... um, beginning of the 19th century and Einstein's looked at it very very precisely and and came up with a number of equations here but what happens you know to the naked head when you're looking at pollens on on the surface of water is that it moves like crazy uh, with the microscopes and this movement is simply due to thermal energy and so we're operating and our proteins are operating at this level in a a level of of disorder which is unbearable and very, very difficult to imagine how you can get life out of it. And this is really what what interests me because you end up with molecule moving crazily. I mean, if a molecule had your size, you would be moving at 250 kilometer per hour, bouncing on many other molecules that are actually the same speed. And, and so you can imagine the chaos in there is, is absolutely humongous. And still we have life and still we have neurons that can remember, stay alive for many, many, many years, as long as we are, make memories and recall these memories and learn and so on and so forth. This is incredible uh, because when you start looking at this molecule one after the other, you just think, oh, my God, how did they do it? And this is where I am. This is where really I'm trying to make sense of all this disorder and try to see how molecules are actually operate. And what people have found, including us, is that for short periods of time, these molecules sort of huddle together in very specific area of the neurons, and they call little nanoclusters. And these nanoclusters, our idea of this is that they're really here statistically all the time, but one won't last more than a few seconds, right? And they are carrying a unit of function. So there's many types of nanoclusters, really huddling molecules. There are many types of molecules in each of these clusters. And there's maybe some level of selectivity in which which molecule come in this cluster, number one, which molecule come into cluster number two, and so on and so forth. And out of this, you can start to get unit of functions that when you sum all these unit of function one after the other, you get a cellular function and a cellular 
life, really. Um, and that's really what interests me. So sort of looking at the nitty gritty of how these things are organized and how when you stimulate the neurons, which basically means that that neurons is actually engaging into doing something, right? How this, these nanoclusters are actually changing and to try to disentangle all these, these processes at, at single molecule level. And so is it the nanoclusters that create order from all of the chaos that exists in the brain? Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's, that's correct. That's, that's one of the things where the molecule wants to move at 250 kilometers per hour, but it's held. So there's a break that allows it to stop for a few seconds in this little confined environment. Because it's confined with other molecules which may be effectors of that molecules, then it creates function. Because they huddle together, then binders under in the cytosol can come close and start binding and unbinding and binding and unbinding, which create a little nanoscale environment in which a function can occur. But if your molecule were to move like this, you couldn't basically do it because the ability to have other molecules to come across at that speed would be impossible. Now, I understand you're particularly interested in the synapse. What is the synapse and what role does it play in the brain? So the synapse is really, really cool because we have, you can imagine that we have, I don't know, about 100 million neurons in our brain, right? And each of them make contact with other neurons and there's roughly for each neurons approximately 1,000 of this contact. So multiply the 100 million neurons by a thousand, and that gives you roughly the number of connections that you have between neurons. So it's humongous. And these connections are actually a tiny, tiny little part of the neuron. So you can imagine for an elephant or a giraffe, you can have in the cell, bo the cell body in the spinal cord and the nerve terminal, which is part of the synapse, in the toes, well, I don't know if you would call the toes in an elephant, but it's, it would be quite far away, right? Several meters. This is the same cell. So you can imagine that you have something there which will look, you know, thousands of kilometers away at what happened at that place. But that place is where communication occurs. Now, remember what I said at the very beginning where all these molecules are actually moving at 250 kilometers per hour, right? What's going to happen when you have molecule moving at 200 kilometers per hour, would they stay stuck in a place where that function is needed or would they go everywhere? If you put ink into a glass of water, what happens? Does it stay still or does it spread out and diffuse? It's spread out and diffuse at 250 kilometers per hour, depending on the size of, that, of these molecules. And so really what happened is trying to understand how you can get molecules which are highly selective to synapses function to stay still in the nanoscale environment of a tiny little space which is open to the rest of the neurons which could be several meters is mind-blowing and I still don't understand that and now we're talking about things that are not necessarily nanoclusters which are associated with uh, the, the, the membranes or lipids of the membrane but things which are more in the realm of gel that you can put in your hair or I mean sort of this liquid phase transition that can happen which allow you know when you open an egg you've got different phases you got the yellow you got the the white but the white is the part which is slightly liquid and another part which is slightly solid this is phase transition 
it's in the cytosol because an egg is a cell, right? This is exactly what happened in our cells, right? And we think that at the synapse, and this is something that, that we're trying to publish at the moment, there are very tiny little nano condensate of this sort of oil-like sort of structure that allows this molecule to stay still in, in the environment of the synapse and not exit too much. So there's no membrane, there's nothing stopping them from going, but because they have a lot of binder molecule that interact in this region, they tend to stay still around there and the, and the diffusion is altered slightly in this area and that's why they stay here. So I'm getting the impression that the synapse is vital to communication between brain cells. What happens when this system breaks down? Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's disease, isn't it? And uh, disease can, can take a lot of forms, you can, especially in the brain. You can have schizophrenia, you can have epilepsy, and you can have the tsunami of neurodegenerative disease that are coming our way uh, with the aging population. So really trying to understand what happened. And, and, and coming back to the single molecule, I think this is quite interesting because in 99% of neurodegenerative diseases, you, you end up with clumps of proteins which are toxic one way or another. And okay, they can take different forms. But, you know, my view is if you have, if you end up with, with a molecules which basically tend to clog, its mobility is going to be enormously altered. In fact, because there's many molecules coming in these clumps, it's going to stop. So you're talking about having at the level of the synapse or even in the cell body, it doesn't really matter, a piece of matter with many, many, many molecules that are clogged there. It's like a, a, a black hole of the cell where you can come in, but you can't get out anymore. And the cell which is supposed to survive for a lifetime, have to cope with this massive, big, giant stuff in the middle, not knowing what to do. So they try different stuff, autophagy, to try to get rid of it, but it's too big. They try different tricks to it, but it's still there. And this, this ability to make big clogs is increasing and increasing. And at that stage, the cell goes, okay, guys, I had enough, bye-bye. And that's how you get motor neuron disease, that's how you get Alzheimer's, that's how you get Parkinson's and so on and so forth. So, of course, you know, there's different type of mechanism that happen, but at the level of the single molecule, I think this is quite important because you get into this aggregate, you can't get out of them. And we think that with technology now, at single molecule level, you can actually access when a molecule gets rogue, when the molecule enter this that matter from which it will never come back, right? And it, if you have that first sort of insult, which is the very, very, very first insult at the single molecule level, right? Then you can actually start thinking, okay, what if I put this drug and this drug and this drug to try to disentangle that and prevent that from occurring at the very first level of a cascade of events that will eventuate in the cell death, basically. And so that's what we're trying to do. So we're very, very lucky because um, UQ uh, just award, awarded me with uh, uh, strategic funding for quite a lot of money and a lot of, of microscopy gear. And now we can do drug discovery and do single molecule imaging and then look at this protein and try to stop them from entering the dark matter of clumps. 
To track the changes in the cells, you must need a pretty powerful microscope. How far into the brain can you see with these microscopes? Great question. So if you're talking about the real brain of animals, including us, we can't go very far. We've got two photon microscopy where you can get like 100 micron inside, maybe a little bit more, but not much. And uh, that's quite limiting. Uh, you can go three photon. A few people can do that now. Uh, we're very, very lucky to have amazing uh, facility here that could potentially build such a microscope. And that would go even further. In fact, you could potentially even start imaging the brain with, with the skull because with three photon, you can go through the skull quite easily. But this kind of hasn't happened yet here. But the problem is that the resolution is not good enough to get to the single molecule level. So we need to have super resolution detector to go a little bit closer to the range of nanoscale that I'm talking about. And this strategic funding we allowed us to have uh, a very uh, cool new microscope, which is a two photon microscope with super resolution detector, which will allow us to go deeper in the brain and start to see much better at double the resolution that we normally have. So it's not quite single molecule, but it's getting there big time. So it seems like we've very quickly gone from the sorts of microscopes most people will be able to remember using in high school science class to some very advanced technologies today. How quickly is this landscape changing and how is UQ's Queensland Brain Institute leading the field? What's the most recent technological development here? Okay, so what we have is during my lifetime as a scientist, not that I think I'm old, but I'm getting there, I, I went through a couple of, of these revolutions. So the, you know, when I was growing up as a PhD student, I would use antibody on fixed tissues like everybody else and do staining with that. And that was basically what we all had to endure. And then came out the, the GFP, the green fluorescent proteins, where they started to clone the fluorescent protein from a jellyfish and then tag that things onto any of our proteins and then suddenly all our proteins became sort of visible and that was super cool so i did a lot of this experiment as a postdoc uh, where you can actually see blobs of proteins going from one place to another and start to understand a little bit better how they worked right uh, but the second revolution uh, that started around 2000 and a bit later where people starting to push to say okay we're gonna beat the, the, the Abbey uh, light sort of low, where we're gonna go below the diffraction of light. So the diffraction of light is a very physical problem where you cannot see a light within the range of the, of the wavelengths of that light. So it's basically divided by roughly two. And so what you end up doing is if you have a light which is around you know, sort of 500 uh, nanometer, what you will see a blob for each molecule, which is around 200, 250 nanometers. You can't go below that, there's no way. And so which is means that if you have 10, 20 molecules somewhere, what you'll see is a massive big blob and that's it. You won't be able to see anything else but a big blob. And I've been imaging blobs for many, many years. And nowadays you can sort of entangle all that with super resolution microscopy one way or another, there's many, different type of super resolution microscopy. But the one I'm more interested in is the one that allow us to actually see one molecule at a time. So this single molecule. So you still see the blob, 
But because they, you see a blob in isolation, well, that blob is actually moving and you see one molecule. Then it bleaches and then you see another one and another one and another one. And because you see thousands and thousands of these, you can start to do statistical analysis on them. And so, and the ability of doing that is that you're not anymore into the realm of fixed tissue where you put paraformaldehyde on your cells and you kill the cells to see where things are. You're talking about real live neurons that are performing functions and you see molecule moving and performing the function. And that's because that's really what I'm after at the moment. So the, the type of experiment that we're doing is to understand how molecules actually behave in the real environment in a live neuron. And at the Queensland Brain Institute, what sort of developments are you seeing in terms of the technology and the microscopes yep. and the advancement there? Yes, so uh, there's many different type of, of microscopy that are available here. Uh, some of them we buy, some of them we make ourselves. The technology goes in different directions. So you've got the physics department that are making really amazing microscopes. Some of them are you know, defies the laws of gravity. But you can also use laser to actually trap things, so blobs or fluorescence or area of the cells, and then you can sort of target something and allow it to go from one place to another. You can apply forces within the cells, which are the rend of pico Newton. So it's, it's, it's really quite amazing. And these are people in physics doing that most of the time. So we collaborate with them. And y there's, there was a few papers that come out where you can start to, to uh, perform this function where you can tell a single molecule to go from one place to another. And that's coming up now. So th this sort of technology always advancing. But most of the time, there's l a lag time with the way people analyze the data and the way, because most of the time people have used fixed tissues and they lose single molecule and you end up in a situation where you flatten an entire movie that you get where you have localization of different proteins in one plane. So you see where the nanoclusters are and all the technology has gone to try to work out, you know, how these clusters look like, how many molecules there is and stuff like that. But because we use live cells, it's completely different. You need to come up with a completely different type of analysis where you're not only looking at spatial clustering, but you're also looking at temporal clustering. And so now we're collaborating with physicists to try and, and statisticians to try to work out the spatial temporal clustering, which has never been done before. And I remember really vividly discussing this because we were so bored during COVID in isolation with one of my postdocs, which is a coder. And we thought, wouldn't it be nice to use, you know, these video games to actually use single molecule trajectories and see when they overlap in space and time. And from this discussion, we got a paper which is now in revision in one of the top journals out there. So it, it's, it's all about discussion, but now I can tell my late mother, that the, 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 the time I spent playing video game was not for nothing and that I actually ended up using them to do single molecule imaging analysis. And, and it works really, really well. And it's super fast, of course, because video games are extremely fast. They've been, you know, all the algorithm have been made to, for speed. And, and we, we managed to analyze data in, you know, very, very, very quickly now. And it sounds like it's got the capacity to really revolutionize research and industry as well. Yeah, it's possible. So I, I thought it would be impossible to interest any pharma 
company with single molecule, but in fact, no, not at all. They're completely open to it. One of the founder of the field managed to raise, I think it was $400 million in uh, just saying he's going to do drug discovery with single molecule imaging and bing, the company was out. It is a Nobel Prize, so that's, you know, maybe it helps a bit. <laughs> but when I started talking about it here, I had a few, you know, I wasn't, they weren't too sure about it. But nowadays it's kind of okay. And, and a, n- a number of companies, including AbbVie, are actually investing into that. And, you know, we're using single molecule imaging to try to see how certain neurotoxin attack our neurons, how they come in and how they sort of explain some of the function that they have. And they're very interested into that. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of Botox. So that's what we're looking at now. We're looking at Botox. But the problem is that the, the great thing about Botox is that he, it's the most potent neurotoxin. So you only need a few milligrams to kill an entire town made of 400,000 people. So it, it's really highly potent. And hence, that means that it works at, at a concentration which is in the picomolar range. This, this is, you're talking, it's incredibly diluted. That's why they make so much money out of it because all you have to do is to dilute 1,000 times or 2,000 times something and it's still very, very active. And so it's not quite the normal realm of imaging. You're talking about a molecule which is highly diluted and nobody's been able to do that without raising the concentration completely artificially and looking at what it does. And we always sort of question that that sort of strategy saying, well, we, we're using nanomolar concentration of a toxin, well, it's normally working at much lower concentration. But with single molecule imaging, it's completely different. Now you can add picomolar concentration and see single molecule coming in and out. And a lot of surprise came in. And all these papers are being submitted as we speak. So the, the truth lies at the realm of function of these proteins. Anything which is above that is artificial. It must be incredibly exciting to be at the forefront of this discovery research. I mean, what do you think we might find out about the brain in the next few years? Well, it's an open question and I wish I knew because, but yeah, no, I don't know. I um, I think at the end of the day, the field will actually reinvent itself like it does every single time there's a revolution. You look at the same old problems, which are inherent problems to our understanding of how the word is exist and is um, understanding of the word is, is only limited by the number of ways we can see it. We have eyes that have limitations, we have ears, we have sensations, we have emotions and so on and so forth. So understanding this, the outside world is, is a big part of what we do in biology. And I think that we're going to take the same old aspect, look at all these problems, but with new light, with new technology, with new single molecule imaging and lots of different more complex equations are going to come out of it and and hopefully we can solve a few problems along the way. Now you've worked and studied in France and England. I'm wondering how does the research landscape in Australia compare to those historical arenas of science? I actually was very lucky. I mean France was great and but the, the institute I was in well disappeared no, not not long after I, I left. Uh, so there was there's a turnover which is pretty high. 
But when I came to England, I, I ended up in um, Cambridge at the LMB, which for me was a temple of, of science because of modern science, because that's where they discovered uh, DNA. That's where they discovered crystallography. And I, I vividly remember that, you know, every time you were going for tea, you were following the tracks of all these Nobel Prize with their picture on the stars. And so you wouldn't stay too long at, at tea times messing around with people and then come back to your experiments. Uh, that, that, that was a great place. It's, it's really a temple. It was really old and now it's been built again somewhere else. But um, it's nice to be in an environment where you feel that you're on the shoulders of people that have basically made massive change in biology. And how is that different to what you're experiencing here in Australia? So Australia is a, is a great place because I, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you have the choice. You're, you're a scientist, you're a nerd, you like science, and you just said, okay, well, I only have one life, so I would rather, you know, live it in a nice environment than living in a, you know, in a big town, London, Paris, or you name it. Um, so we dis we opted for Australia, and the environment was great uh, because at the time it was the the smart state. I don't know if you remember that, but it it was incre incredibly exciting because they managed to get funnel some some funds from from different sources, government, UQ, and and some philanthropists, and we were very very lucky to be in this era because this was the era where the sky was the limit at UQ, and you really felt that they cared about all the people who actually decided to spend their life at, at UQ. And, you know, li like everything, there's eras. And you come to a, a new era now, it's much more difficult for scientists. But I still look back and thinking, you know, when you have newcomers, new students, new postdocs that come to your lab, you really ought to give them the same opportunity that you were given and uh, really try to, you know, sort of make sure that they understand that this is a hard choice in life and that if you do that, it's really because you can't do anything else. And, um, you know, spending your life doing that is great, but there's a number of things that you need to be able to achieve and um, try to get them into the habit of, of making sure that all the, the boxes are ticked is, is very important. So, yeah, I look back at all these years and thinking, okay, well, now it's time to give back. Oh, what a lovely way to end our podcast, Frederick. Thank you so much for your time. It's been just so interesting listening to you talk about your experiences and sharing your wisdom with everyone. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more or support the work we do here at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. I'm Rebecca Archer and that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.